Take your Bible and turn to the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 1. As you're turning to Colossians 1, the story is told of a young boy who was with his mom and he was outside and he looked up to the sky and he said, Mommy, is God up there? Of course, the mommy looked down at this little child and the mommy said, yes, yes, he is up there. And the little boy said, well, wouldn't it be nice if God would just put his head out and let us see him? And then very wisely, the mother said, he did, in the person of Jesus. We're going to look at him today. Colossians chapter 1. Let's gaze upon the exceeding glory of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 15, follow with me as I read the passage. He, that is referring to Jesus, the beloved Son, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. The Puritan John Flavel once said this in writing about Christ. Let everyone stand aside. And you need to give way to Jesus Christ. If you only knew his worth and his excellency, if you only knew how great he is in himself and what he's done for you and what he deserves from you, you would not need arguments from a preacher to persuade you to love him. And then Flavel continued, as every ray of God is precious, so everything that is in Christ, is precious, Jesus Christ. What a great God, and what a great Savior he is. Now, there is no topic that is more exhilarating than the topic of Christ. There is no topic that is more enthralling than the topic of Christ. There's no topic that is more exciting than the doctrine of Christ, and no topic that is more essential than the topic of Of Christ. Jesus is infinitely good. Jesus is wholly divine. Jesus is eternally man. Jesus is tenderly loving. And Jesus is altogether lovely. Samuel Rutherford, speaking on the loveliness of Christ, Rutherford said this, Every day, you and I ought to see some new thing in Christ. His love has neither brim nor bottom. 
how blessed we are to enjoy the invaluable treasure of Christ, how blessed we are to love him, how blessed we are to to be mastered by him, to be subdued in his love so that Jesus is our all and all other things are nothing when compared to him. So then, Rutherford said, I urge you, Christian, I urge you a nearer and a growing communion with Christ. Because he said, there are curtains to be drawn back in Christ that you've not seen before. There are new foldings of love in him that you've not seen before. So dig deep, Christian, and sweat and labor and take pains for him and set as much time in the day for him as you possibly can. Because he will be one and known through labor. Live in Christ's love. Christ's love is so kingly, it must have a throne all alone in your soul. What a Savior. What a Savior he is. If you and I were to boil down what does it mean to live the Christian life, you and I might say Christian living is, it's all for Christ. Heaven's glory can be summed up in this. It's all about Christ. Hell, hell's wrath is unleashed for rejecters of Christ. Salvation's achievement is all done by Christ. You and I live in pretty crazy times. You and I live in very dark times. What gives you hope when you think, I'm living in Sodom? The hope is that Jesus has loved me. What gives you hope knowing that God is going to bring fiery judgment in the future on unbelievers? The hope is this, that Christ has loved me. What gives you hope When civilization just decays in depravity, where do you find hope? That Jesus Christ has loved me. What gives you hope when the towering waves of trials just seem to crash upon your soul? The hope is that Jesus Christ has loved me. Ponder this Christ with me. He is the seed of the woman that crushes Satan on the head, Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the prophet speaking God's word, and God said you must listen to him, Deuteronomy 18.15-18. Jesus is the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and the prince of peace, Isaiah 9.6. He is the servant of God, high and lifted up and greatly exalted, Isaiah 52.13. Jesus is the one born in Bethlehem, going forth for God, ruling in Israel, and he is from the days of eternity, Micah 5.2. Jesus is the messianic king, just, humble, saving, and he will end all wars, and he will have a kingdom on this earth from sea to sea, Zechariah 9, verses 9 and 10. And even though he was pierced in his hands and his feet... The kingdom belongs to the Lord's, and he will rule over all the nations. Psalm 22. What a Savior we have! 
What a great Savior. We love talking about the things that enthrall us. So Colossians 1 is going to bring right in front of us Paul's wonderful description of our glorious Savior. You and I could say with Philip P. Bliss, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Guilty, vile, and helpless, we spotless Lamb of God was He. Full atonement can it be. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lifted up was He to die. It is finished was His cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a Savior. When he comes, our glorious king, all his ransomed home to bring, then anew this song will sing. Hallelujah. What a savior. Last week, when we gathered together on January 1st, we saw the mission of the church, sort of beginning a new year and being reminded from the word of God, who are we? What is the church to be? What is the church to do? What is the mission and the purpose of the church? And very simply, we saw that our practice is to proclaim Christ. That's what we are to do. We are to proclaim Jesus Christ. We are to present every man complete in Christ. But if we're to do that, we have to know him. We have to know Christ. We have to worship Christ. We have to adore Christ because you cannot be wrong about Jesus and be right with God. There's a lot of people who are living in our day who think they're right with God, but they're wrong about Jesus. So Paul writes the book of Colossians. He writes this book of Colossians to combat a a doctrine, a teaching in the city of Colossae that began to creep into the church. It's often known by scholars as the Colossian heresy. It diminished the preeminence of Christ. It, It diminished the sufficiency of the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. And instead, the false teaching began to emphasize you obeying rules and you adhering to the man-made regulations. But that's powerless to change your life, truly. It's powerless. It's kind of like a combination, a mix of legalistic Judaism and Greek philosophy, this Colossian heresy that was creeping into the church. And Paul hears about it and he writes the book of Colossians to combat that. Because he wants the believers to look At the preeminence of Christ. Christ is greater. Christ is better. Christ is preeminent. Christ is supreme. And right here in Colossians 1, verses uh, verses 15 to 20, many view it as an early Christian hymn. It, it, in fact, rhymes in some places. Many of the words begin with the same letter at places as Paul is writing in the Greek. It's an amazing portion of literature. As we look at this section together, I want to show you the glory of Christ. I want to show you the excellence of Christ. I want to show you the satisfying glory of Christ in six simple ways. 
I want to give you six reasons or maybe descriptions why Jesus is infinitely glorious from this paragraph. Boys and girls, you can take notes here. I would encourage you to take notes, and I would love to see your notes afterward because this is really a simple outline that you can all follow along with. Number one, Jesus is God. And we see that right here in verse 15. This is where Paul begins in this wonderful description. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn of all creation. When Jesus was walking in Jerusalem, just before he would go to the cross, in John chapter 10, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. Earlier in John chapter 1, verse 1, we read that the Word became flesh and the Word is God. In John chapter 5, again, Jesus, on a different occasion, was in the Jerusalem area speaking to the religious leaders, and he was calling God his own Father, and they understood that he's claiming to be equal to God. In John 9, he healed a man who was born blind. John 9, 38, the man worshipped Jesus. In 1 John chapter 5, verse 20, the Apostle John said, This Jesus is the true God. In John 17, 24, Jesus referred to himself as having eternal glory. In Hebrews 1, 3, he is the exact representation of God's nature. And just very clearly and unmistakably, Isaiah 9, 6, he's called the mighty God. Biblical conclusion, Jesus is God. He is God, and that's what verse 15 says. He's the image of the invisible God. And then let your eyes skip down to verse 19. Look at it here. It is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. And then let your eyes skip down even more to chapter 2, verse 9. As if Paul can get even clearer, look at 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. What a God! What a Savior! What a Christ! And when we say that Jesus is God, a couple of things that you and I can think about by way of stirring us to worship. Number one, this means he's infinite. He's infinite. He is bankless and bottomless and shoreless and unfathomable. This Savior, Jesus Christ, all the fullness of God dwells bodily in him. And Paul says that to see the invisible God is found in Christ. You want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. You want to see the characteristics of God? Look at Christ. He's infinite. Number two, he's also eternal. He's without beginning. He's without end. The second person of the Trinity is everlasting. He's also third, unfathomable, unfathomable, infinitely wise, perfect in every attribute. You and I, forever in glory, will worship Jesus for his grace. That'll take eternity to do. We're going to worship him for his love. That'll take eternity to do. We'll worship him for his 
holiness. It'll take eternity to do. He's infinitely wise, infinitely perfect in every single attribute. His being, person, nature, character, and glories can never fully be comprehended. Even in glory, we will swim forever and learn continually of Christ and his unfathomable nature. Not only is he infinite and eternal and unfathomable, also we learn about Jesus being God. Fourth, he's happy. He's happy. Have you thought about this lately? That our God is infinitely happy. He's blessed. He's delighted. He's glad in himself. Totally glad. And he invites you to have full gladness as it's caught up in him. He's not only infinite, eternal, unfathomable, happy, but he's also, number five, good. He's good. All good. There is no bad in Jesus. There is no evil in Jesus. There's no corruption in Jesus. There is no stain in Jesus. All good that you could ever find is in Jesus. I love how the Puritans would say, you'll never find any good outside of Jesus. And then verse 15, he's the firstborn of all creation. It doesn't mean that he's the first man to be born chronologically as if Jesus had a beginning. That's not what the text means. That's not what Jewish culture would say. It means he has the position of authority. That's what the firstborn was. It was the position of prominence. That was Jewish culture. The firstborn son may not have always been the oldest one, but he was the one with the greatest rights and privileges. He was the preeminent one as the firstborn one. And let me prove it to you in Psalm 89, verse 27. God says, I shall make him my firstborn. What does that mean? He'll be the highest of the kings of the earth. What is the firstborn of all creation? It means that Jesus is the preeminent one. He is the most honored one in all of creation because he's God. Number one, Jesus is God. And for this reason, church family, let's worship him. Worship him. Worship him who is most exalted Because Jesus is God. Number two, if you're taking notes, jot this main heading down. You see it right here in the text, Colossians 1. Now in verse 16, Jesus is creator. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in the heavens, on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is creator. Or Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 spells it out very clearly that through Christ, God made the world. Jesus creates from nothing, out of nothing. Only God can do that. And he is the creator, and that's what verse 16 says. For by him, the him is Christ, the beloved son, by him all things were created in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible. Let me clarify this from the verse for you. Number one, what? What did he create? 
Well, right here in verse 16, it says all things. Do you see that? All things. I had a man in my face on Thursday in downtown Clayton. It ended, it began with him yelling. It ended with a handshake. But he could not believe that I believed the Bible. And that I said evolution is a lie. And that God made all things as if I had like 10 eyes or something. He thought I was crazy. But right here, on the authority of God's word, all things were made by Christ. Second, where? Where is he creator? All things in the heavens, verse 16, and the earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. Visible, what does that mean? The things you see. Invisible, what's that? The things you don't see, like the spiritual realm. Thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, probably this refers to the angels, the angelic realm, both fallen and unfallen. So what did he do? He made all things where? In the heavens and on the earth? Who? Who did this? All things have been created by God by him. This is a passive verb. He did it. God did it. No, no, you know that. You believe that. The Bible says it. It's unmistakable. Let me give you just one, just one illustration. Ponder with me the star Antares, 60,000 times larger than our sun. That's pretty big. 60,000 times larger than our sun. So let's just imagine if, if our sun were the size of a softball, this star in Taurus would be the size of a two-story house. Jesus made it. And that's just one star in one galaxy that he knows and he made And he designed. You see, you and I live in God's universe. He made it. He owns it. He governs it. He orders it. You and I don't dictate what we think ought to happen. God does. He's the authority. And why did he do all of this? Look at the end of verse 16. Why did he do it? Well, all things have been created through him and for him. Get this. I've got the purpose for your life. You exist for Jesus, your creator. I love going to St. Louis University with others here on Thursday, and we can say to young students here, and they're always wondering, what's the purpose of life? I know the purpose of your life, not because I'm smart and I know everything about you, but God says in the Bible, he made you and you exist for him. Your life is to be for him. Your family is to be for him. Your money is to be for him. Your time is to be for him. All that you are is to be for him because he made you. He made you. What a great and mighty, powerful creator. Psalm 104 is a great psalm. We don't have the time to turn there. I've got a lot more notes, so I... Don't want to turn there. But Psalm 104 is a commentary on Genesis 1. It's like the creation song, but it's found in Psalm 104. And it even goes through the days of creation in order. It's amazing. 
But at the very end of that psalm of creation, what does the psalmist do? He says that you are to sing to God. You are to praise God. You are to meditate on God. You are to rejoice in God, and we are to bless God. This this truth about Jesus is creator. It ought to produce in us worship, gladness, joy, blessing, meditation, and praise. Paul, in this hymn, has given us these great descriptions of God. Number one, or descriptions of Jesus. Number one, he is God. Number two, he is creator. But let's continue in the hymn. Look at verse 17. I'll give you the third heading. If you're taking notes, jot this down. Number three, Jesus is sustainer. Sustainer. Verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Uh, One English translation has, he holds all creation together. A story is told of a of a, of a young elementary school class that went to a large state university, and they were having a tour of some of the science labs. And one of the professors was giving a tour and showing the different elements and test tubes and what they do in, in, in the labs. And at one point, the professor, in kind of an arrogant and sort of a, uh, uh, a hopeless kind of a way, said, well, how do all of these things hold together in one little boy? One little boy just blurted out, Jesus holds it all together. And the professor didn't like it. But the boy was right. Jesus holds everything together. Do you see it here? Now, now think about this. In your, in your Bible, verse 17, I mean, ponder the enormity of this. Jesus is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We have the time. He's before all things. The chronological time. Jesus didn't have a beginning. He is the second person of the triune God. He always existed as God. He is before all things, and he holds all things together. Can I give you a little clue into the Greek language here? Here's what Paul is doing. He uses a verbal form as if to say he's flashing the bright neon light on this verb in verse 17. It's the verb, he holds all things together. Paul wants you to know that in Jesus Christ and in his great power, he is actively at this moment with emphasis holding all things together. Paul draws your attention to it as if he wants you to know Jesus is the glue holding it all together. He's the center point holding everything together. He's the the guiding hand who is actively, perfectly governing all things to their appointed end in the entire universe. Did you see the hail that fell yesterday? I mean, that was pretty crazy. Jesus brought every one of those down, telling them when to fall and where to land and when to melt. Every snowflake, every raindrop, every blade of grass, every tree, every animal, large and small insect, 
Things you can see and things you can't see. Every person out of the 8 billion on the planet, Jesus is holding everything together. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? Every law of science, every law of nature is ordered by Christ. All persons, all galaxies, all atoms, all energies, all suns, all moons, all trees, everything held together by Christ. And when science is rightly done and rightly interpreted, it will always support that conclusion. Always. And by the way, isn't it cool? To know that the eternal God who sustains the entire universe is watching over you right now. Isn't that great? That no detail of your life is too small for God's concern, even the pastor's passport that he forgets was expired. Nothing is too small and nothing is too big. Our God holds everything together. In the early church, there was a man by the name of uh, Athanasius from the city of Alexandria in Egypt. He He was a mighty thunderer for the truth. He was a defender of the deity of Christ in a world that rejected the deity of Christ. Here's what Athanasius said in the 300s AD. Christ is the all-powerful, all-holy word of the Father. He spreads his power over all things everywhere. He enlightens things seen and unseen, and he holds and he binds all things together in himself. This is, this is what the Bible says. This is awesome. Jesus is God. Jesus is creator. Jesus is sustainer. We see that here in verse 17. But I want you to see how Paul continues the hymn. Now in verse 18, you got to get this. This is an easy heading to write down and spell. Maybe sustainer was a little hard, boys and girls. But now number four, a little easier. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord. Verse 18, he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he will come to have first place in everything. I love the account in Acts chapter 10 when Cornelius sends for Peter, come and preach in my house. And then, this is so cool, Peter gathers all of his friends and his family and his relatives to hear what Peter has to say, and Peter arrives, and Peter preaches the word, and in the sermon, the Spirit of God falls, and they get saved. They get saved. In Peter's sermon, Acts 10.36, Peter says, Jesus is Lord over all. Philippians 2.11, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Revelation 17, 14, the lamb overcomes because he is Lord and to be saved. You must confess, Romans 10, verse 9, that Jesus is Lord. You say, well, I don't see that in verse 18. Where is Lord? I don't have that in my Bible. It's in the word head. 
Do you see it there in verse 18? He is the head of the body, the church. What does that mean, head? Well, it means authority. It means master. It means Lord. Jesus is Lord. That means you and I are under his lordship. That means as the body of Christ, you and I, together, corporately, we are under his lordship. You think, well, that's cool theology. No, no, no. It's also really practical. Well, what about when there's division in the church? What about when there's disunity in the church? Well, how does the lordship of Christ relate to that? Well, we enjoy peace and unity as a church as we live under the headship of Christ, his lordship. But all division and all disunity will invade and come in when somebody is living contrary to or disobediently to the lordship of Christ rather than submitting to it. He is Lord. And because he is the head of the body of the church, he's Lord of the church, he dictates what is done in the church. So it's not up to me, it's not up to you, it's not up to a man, a committee, a vote, or the unbelieving world to figure out how church is to be done. We don't have the prerogative or the authority to to determine how the church is to function. Jesus does. And because he is the head of the body, he's connected. He's involved. He's wise. And he's alive. He's alive. And the text says that he's the head of the body, the church, verse 18, and he is the beginning. The beginning. Used in the sense of the source. Jesus is the beginning, the source of all things. He's the primacy of all things, the source of all things. The church has its origins in Jesus. He's the head of the body, and he is the source of the body. He is the beginning of the body. I mean, Jonathan Edwards was pondering this, and Jonathan Edwards said, Christ has infinite loveliness to win and draw our love because he is the brightness of God's glory. He's Lord. He's the authority. We are under his lordship. Paul then says in verse 18, he is the beginning and the firstborn from the dead. Not the first one to rise from the dead. In the Old Testament, there were people who raised from the dead. And Jesus himself raised people from the dead. It doesn't mean that he's the first in time. It means that he's the preeminent one in rank. he's He's the most elevated, the most preeminent, the most honored one. More on that you can read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. But you know what I find so fascinating about this? Jesus is the Lord of the church. There are many times where churches, pastors, deacons, elders, they don't want Jesus to be Lord. They want to be Lord. I mean, there are many who would love to say, I depend on the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Sure, but I'm not going to submit to him as my king. I would love to have Jesus to pacify my conscience. 
but I would love to please the desires of my heart and live for the world. Oh, there are many people who would love to have Jesus die for them, but they don't want Jesus to live in them. No, Jesus is Lord. He is the authority. He is the head. The question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? Men and women, boys and girls, a good question for every one of you here. Is he your Lord? He cannot be your Savior if he is not your Lord. If you don't take up your cross and follow Christ, Jesus said you're not his disciple. That doesn't mean you're perfect. But it means that you bow the knee like the hymn in willing bonds under his feet. I'm a slave of such a great master. We're all slaves of one of two masters. Satan and sin or Christ and his truth. Jesus is God. He is God. He is creator. He is sustainer. Fourth, he is Lord. Number five in your outline, let me give you another one. Jesus is preeminent. He is preeminent. Oh, I, I wish I could give like 10 parts on this of a sermon series, but I can't. End of verse 18. Why is he the head of the body, the church? He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. Oh, ponder, imagine this with me. If you take all the glory and all the weight and all the worth of 10,000 worlds, and then you compare that to Christ, Jesus far outweighs it all. He far outweighs it all. This is the purpose clause of verse 18. He's the head of the body. He is the beginning. He is the preeminent one risen from the dead. Why? So that he will have first place. Now, if you and I are reading this in Greek, this is a technical term that Paul uses in verse 18, first place or preeminence. It's a technical term in theology. It denotes the totality of divine powers and attributes. There was a group of people called the Gnostics. The Gnostics. It was a group that taught a kind of secret, elevated, hidden wisdom That Jesus is sort of a a halfway house to God. Jesus is kind of a, a link in the chain with other better links ahead that will lead you to God. You gotta come to Gnosticism to get the secret hidden knowledge. Paul says, No! In Jesus, He Himself, He has the first place in everything. Why is it a technical term? Because it's a technical term that refers to the very essence of God. He is the first place to the same degree that God is. First place in everything. Also, by the way, if you and I were looking at our Greek Bibles, there's a little phrase that's fronted for emphasis. And the little phrase 
is in everything. So that in everything, he will come to have first place. And not only is it plural, it's singular in every single thing in all of your life. Jesus will be first place. You say, well, that's cool. No, let me apply that. Our church is to be about Christ. Your marriage is to be about Christ. Your work is to be about Christ. Your grocery shopping is to be about Christ. Your working out and your exercising is to be about Christ. Your sports are to be about Christ. Your hobbies are to be about Christ. Your schooling, boys and girls, is to be about Christ. All of your energies are to be about Christ. Your conversations are to be about Christ. Your very life is to be about Christ. It's not, well, I got Jesus first in my life, and then I got my marriage and my parenting and my church and my work, all these things. No. God should be first in your marriage, first in your parenting, first in your work, first in your money, first in your time management. Every category of life, Jesus should be preeminent over it all. So in our preaching, Christ must be preeminent. In our singing, Christ must be preeminent. In our scripture reading, Christ must be preeminent. In our communicating with one another, he must be preeminent. In our partaking of the ordinances, communion, baptism, he must be preeminent. In our evangelizing, Christ must be preeminent. In our praying, he must be preeminent. In our serving one another, he must be preeminent. In all of our ministry. He must be preeminent. Do you prize him? Do you cherish him? Puritan Nathaniel Vincent said, Christ is not truly prized at all unless he is prized above all. He's preeminent. He's great. He is God and worthy of all worship. But there's one more. There's one more that we have to get, and it's found in verse 20. Because in verse 19, Paul again says, It is the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. He's God. But now we come to verse 20, and everything we've looked at so far is good, it's biblical, it's solid, it's sound, it comes out of the text, but you and I still stand condemned before a holy God with all that being true. But verse 20 is now number six. Jesus is Savior. He is Savior And we see that in verse 20, through him, through Jesus, look at this, he reconciles all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What a God, what a Savior, that God is reconciling all things. This is not universalism. This is not teaching that every person who's ever lived is going to be reconciled to God. That's not what it's teaching. The context is verse 18, the church. He's the head of the body of the church. He reconciles all things to himself. 
And he makes peace. How does he do it? Through the blood of his cross. We love that cross, don't we? Do you love the cross? Do you love the bloody cross? Why? Because the Bible says we have confidence to come to God by the blood of Jesus in the book of Hebrews. We know from the scriptures that the blood of the lamb is precious blood from 1 Peter. We know that his is unblemished and spotless blood. We are made white in the blood of the lamb, the scriptures say. It is the blood of Christ that saves us and guarantees that we are saved from God's wrath. Jesus shed his blood on the cross. And here's what we need to remember with this. When he reconciled all things to himself, making peace through the blood of his cross, when we think about the sufferings of Christ on the cross, I mean, that is equivalent to all of the eternal torments of the damned in hell. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. And Jesus took it. He took it. It's like the the love of Jesus Christ is, is written in characters of blood. And his grace is stamped on every line and every blessing of the gospel. Did his blood wash all of your sins away? Have you been made new? Have you been cleansed? Have you been washed? Boys and girls, very rarely do you take a bath anywhere, and especially in blood, and come out white. But only at the cross. You bring all of your sin, all of your disobedience, All of your selfishness, all of the bad motivations that you've had, and every other sin that you have committed, and you bring it to Christ, and he washes. He washes it clean. And it happens through Christ. I love that little phrase in verse 20. Through the blood of the cross, through Christ, whether things on earth or things in heaven, whether saints here or saints above. And maybe there's even an implication here of the cosmic redemption at the end of the age that Romans 8 talks about that will happen. Oh, Jesus is the exclusive Savior. He's a reconciling Savior. He's an impartial Savior. He is a peacemaking Savior. This is why Charles Wesley said in his great hymn, My God is reconciled. His pardoning voice I hear. He owns me for his child. I can no longer fear. With confidence I now draw nigh. With confidence I now draw nigh. And Father, Abba, Father, cry. Can you say, not just that Jesus is a Savior. The devil knows that. But can you say here today, he's my Savior? That's the question. I'm not here concerned if you acknowledge and agree that Jesus is a Savior. I want you to say he's my savior and he's died for me. 
This God who is creator, who is sustainer, who is Lord, who is preeminent, is my Savior. And according to Revelation chapter 22, he's coming back again one day. He's coming back again. So the question I have for you is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you trust him? Do you love him? Do you cling to him? Do you confess him as your Lord and your master? Which means every other is false. Every other Lord, every other Savior is a lie. Jesus is the only way. And because all of this is true, and because Colossians 1 is extolling the glory of our Christ and the, and the glory of our God and the glory of our Savior, let me give you some really practical ways that you and I can take this great theology and live it out, even this afternoon. Church family, hear this. I don't preach just so that we get filled with our heads with doctrine. We want to live out our duty. Number one, because Jesus is so preeminent and great, number one, we ought to talk of him. Talk of him. How did Christ reveal himself to you in the sermon today? I mean, that's that's a simple question you could ask when you're leaving here today. What stunned you in the text about the Savior today? Talk of him. Number two, sing of him. Maybe you sing in the car. Maybe you sing when you're working out. Maybe you sing in the shower. Maybe you sing in your sleep. Maybe you sing when you're at work. Sing of the Savior. Sing of his greatness. Number three, study him. Study him. No greater way we could spend our time than to study our Savior. Church family, are you reading God's word? Do you have a Bible plan? Do you have something to guide you through the year? God has given a complete Bible to make a complete Christian. Let's be in the word. Let's study the word. Let's know the word. Let's see how the word reveals the glory of God and his great plan. Number four, let's adore Christ. What do we do in light of all this? Let's adore him. We worship him. We love him. We, we just can't talk enough about him. Next, let's live. Let's live for him. Live for him. What does that mean? When you're going to bed tonight, parents, we're putting our children to bed. We can speak a word of the glory of Christ to our kids. When you're going to work tomorrow morning and you've got the day ahead of you and all the emails and all the demands and all the meetings and all the travels that you may have, you can live for Jesus Christ whatever happens. And with that, here's next. Number six, you can express gratitude to him. Thank you, thank you, Jesus, that you've reconciled me through the blood of your cross. Thank you, we've heard all weekend, that I am saved from the wrath to come. Number seven, another response, because all this is true, number seven, pray to him. 
Pray to him. Boys and girls, he loves when children pray. Why? He said, let the children come to me. Eight-year-old Josiah, when he became king, he led the nation in revival. Hezekiah as a young man did the same. Pray to our God. Never underestimate the power of praying for the church. Number eight, another way that we can apply this, rest secure in him. The reason I say that is because you and I almost like automatically fall into the temptation that am I doing enough for God? Is he really going to accept me? If can, can I do enough? No, no, no. No, it's not about our performance for God and our achievement for God. It is resting secure in what he has accomplished for us. Number nine. Another application, because our Christ is so great, number nine, point other people to the Savior. You can do it through an email. You can do it through a text. You can do it through a spoken word. You can do it through a gospel tract. You can do it through a conversation. People say, how was your weekend? You can say, let me tell you about my weekend and what I heard all weekend. And tell you about our great God. Number 10. Number 10, because all of this is true, we ought to read the word from our Christ. Read his word. Number 11, ponder much of his cross. What guards us from burnout? What guards, what guards me as a pastor from burnout? What guards you from burnout? Consider the cross. Look at what the Savior endured for you. He gave his all for you. Number 12, because all of this is true, this is last, finally, because all this is true, gather with the saints to worship him. It's not that I I have to go to church. I want, you want, we get to gather with the church as the church to worship our God. And all of these applications are ways in which we can take such great doctrine and we can seek to live it out for God's glory. Whatever season of life, whatever age of life, whatever, whatever place God has you in your life, this doctrine should translate into duty and worship because the truth has gripped your heart. So, I close with this. One writer was speaking of our great Christ, the excellencies of Christ, and he said this, Brethren, in Jesus Christ we have a love that can never be fathomed. In Jesus we have a life that can never die. We have a righteousness that can never be tarnished. We have a peace that can never be fully understood or comprehended. We have a rest that can never be disturbed. We have a joy that can never be diminished. We have a hope that can never be disappointed. We have a glory that can never be clouded. We have a light that can never be darkened. We have a purity that can never be defiled. We have a beauty that can never be marred. We have a wisdom that can never be baffled. We have resources that can never be exhausted. And we have a salvation that never comes to an end. And then Jonathan Edwards said this. 
Behold the excellency of Christ. Because there will be more delight and pleasure in beholding the excellencies of Christ for one hour in heaven than all of this world with all of its pleasures could ever afford you. Live for Christ. For in him and in him alone, we have the sight of God and the joy and the truth of eternal life in Christ alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the power of your word and thank you, Lord, for the clarity that it gives regarding Christ our Savior. It is our duty and our joy and our mission to proclaim Jesus Christ. And we have learned from Colossians 1 who he is, what he has done, and how excellent he is, and how worthy of praise. As we go from here today, may our thoughts and our words and our conversations be filled with Christ. All for his glory. In Jesus' name, amen.